Welcome to the ninth episode of Capture Q. Today's guest is Josh Murphy, a police researcher and a professor at Kwantlen University. This episode was recorded before the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, but we do discuss other events such as George Floyd, Rodney King, and the Dukansky scandal in Canada. We talk about the downtown east side, Oppenheimer Park, what's happening across the city in terms of crime, but also in terms of media coverage of these events. Josh's wealth of experience and knowledge is sure to educate, to inspire, and also to foster dialogue, which is the intent of this episode. So I hope you like it, and we're always open to feedback. You can find us at captureq.com, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me. Of course, yeah. We have so much to talk about. Um, Yeah. There are many things kind of going on in, in Vancouver you know, looking at the downtown east side, the response, the policing response, Black yeah. Lives Matter, police reform, Absolutely. defund the VPD, yeah, everything. we're having a moment. <laughs> yeah, there's a moment. So, you know, as I introduced, you you are a researcher. You yeah. teach at Kwantlen. Kwantlen yeah. Um, yeah, I guess just a quick background sure. on your interest in, in criminology and sure. policing. So I got into, uh, obviously I did my crim person. I'm a criminology person. Uh, I did my BA at SFU. I went to SFU wanting to become a police officer. And along the lines, my ideas for careers change. But I wanted to stay close to policing when I got into academia. My PhD supervisor, my MA supervisor, policing people, I stayed into it. I got into research and teaching in 2013-14. So research first. Um, I was part of a report for Public Safety Canada on basically the state of policing research in Canada. So I got to interview academics from across the country and get a really good sense of kind of what policing research looked like in this country. And the big takeaway was it's not very good. So I was like, hmm, this is a career I might want to pursue because there's not a lot out there. Mm -hmm. Um, In 2014, I started my PhD at SFU and was teaching intro policing from day one as a PhD student, Fun. which is kind of rare, but they needed me. So I did it. And then in the course of those last six years, I've since switched to Kwantlen Polytechnic University where I teach intro criminal justice and a few other things. I'm teaching policing again, and I've done a bunch of different reports and projects um, across the country, basically Manitoba, Alberta, so Winnipeg, Edmonton, and then a bunch in the lower mainland, Saanich, Victoria, Delta, Vancouver. Yeah, transit. Awesome. So that gives you a good insight into, because sometimes people don't have an understanding of how different provinces operate in RCMP versus, I mean, Ontario has the OPP and the Ottawa police and RCMP, right? And the only thing I'll say, because I think there is an important distinction to make, I'm what you call an applied researcher. Okay. So there's the egghead researcher, like egghead pro academics who publish in journals all the time. Okay. And then there's a, a kind of a section of academics in, in, in not just in Canada, but we'll keep it in Canada that do research with police agencies or other government agencies. And ultimately the goal is to produce a report for something. Okay. So it's a report for a police commission or a report for a city hall or a report for a police agency. So we do the research, write this independent review for them and go, here you go. Here's what we found. Mm-hmm. So the difference is we're funded by whoever is paying for the research and we can get into the ethical quandaries of that later if you want to. But it's it's more about we're doing the research for something tangible versus mm-hmm. I'm publishing this in a journal that 
is more theoretical or, you know, whatever. Right. And so that's where the only real your colleagues of, read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm not insulting people <laughs> who do that. There's actually people who do a lot like Laura, if you're interested in this, the person I would recommend looking into is Laura Huey. Okay. She's amazing. Uh, and she does both. Awesome. And so that research entails you're doing, um, and I'm sure it varies depending on who you work for. Yeah. Um, but it entails things like interviewing, um, ride alongs, um, yeah. working with obviously students. Um, yeah. Explain, I guess, how the, the yeah, research so component Yeah. So usually works. the research we do, depending on the type of report we're doing, right? So um, can be can have different components or depending on what we need, right? But generally the strategy is always the same. And we'll have a statistical component. So we have an analyst who'll go in and they will basically look at all the, we, they'll look at the data we need to do. Mm-hmm. We need to analyze. Sometimes it'll be in concert with their, the analysts who work for the agency or somebody else that will be way better at statistics than I'll ever be. Mm-hmm. But their job is to analyze the data. So let's, yeah. as an example, if we're looking at something like street checks, we're going to have our analyst or the person who's doing our analytical component will be doing um, looking at street check numbers. When were they done? How many were done? What was the nature of the call? What was the report? All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. To basically get a statistical representation of what this actually looks like. What is okay. the data? Look, cleaning up their data, analyzing their data. And then the other components can include a variety of different things, but they usually involve interviews, focus groups, ride-alongs. If it's a report that's just on one thing, like let's say we're looking at um, resource deployment of a police agency, like how many Mm -hmm. patrol officers might they need to do what they do? Mm -hmm. We'd stick probably with the agency. We do ride-alongs, we interview their officers, focus groups. But if it's a more comprehensive study, we'd also want to seek out community stakeholder groups. Mm -hmm. Who do we need to engage with in the community? Whether they're activists, representatives, outreach workers, community kind of um, key community people. We want to work with them to set up interviews and focus groups as well to kind of get as much of a holistic perspective of what's going on, right? So we'll have the police perspective and the community perspective. Yeah, the stakeholders of the neighborhood, the people who own businesses, yeah, yeah, live in the area. Totally. And then in other cases, it'll be a survey. We'll we'll get student researchers out in the world surveying people. And that'll be a component. We've done that before, too. That's really fun. Yeah. You once told me, you know, you look at, and obviously there's, there's, ethics of being too close to police or you know the perception sometimes that people who teach criminology or policing are a little bit too close but then you said one time part of my job is to criticize police and of course yes by interviewing people you become close you develop relationships you see their side yeah but i like that you also are doing the same for the community yeah and you know the people who live in in high crime areas and and um looking at what they want yeah i mean our job is the way i see my job is to come in and i i'm not you brought us in because you want to know something about your agency or a situation or policy that you can't see from the inside Mm -hmm. you want an outsider to come in and look at that and that means giving a voice to certain people too, right? Mm -hmm. That also includes giving a voice to your members, your officers, your leaders to see what they're, to tell you what is from their perspective. But it also means, and I think this is more important than ever, engaging your communities that you police, right? Yes. And that means I might be the only person they've had a chance to actually tell their story to or give their perspective to outside of maybe a soundbite in a media article or something, right? But very rarely are we going down and engaging with the people who run 
Portland Housing Society or um, Rain City Housing or Vancouver Youth Services, right? So going to, or whatever nonprofit group, um, Mosaic, right? Mm -hmm. They're not always getting researchers on there knocking at their door going, hey, tell us what you think about police or what you want from police, right? Okay. So our job is to tell it, like, tell whoever we're writing this report for what they see. Mm -hmm. You can disagree, but it's our job to tell you, here's what they think. Mm -hmm. Here's what they want. And it's out there. It's on the table. Mm -hmm. um, it's not to write like the term that has become very popular these days for crim researchers, policing. So crim people who do policing or work with police agencies. It's uh, copaganda oh, that funny. we spread copaganda. Yeah. The reality is we don't. Our job is to actually tell police agencies or who at whatever agency, whether it's public safety, whether it's academics, is to say, you know, what you're doing here could be done differently. Yeah, Here's how yeah. the only difference really is instead of writing a research report and going here, you do all this, 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 and this wrong, have a nice life. It's to go, you do this, 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 and this wrong. Here's how we can help. Or here's what we suggest you do. Yes. Yeah. And that's the, isn't that the purpose of police reform? At least that's how I was kind of have learned over the last six years or so. I think that's what you want out of any reform or any policymaking. You want evidence-based research to mm -hmm. drive that. Mm -hmm. At least that's my perspective. And I think most reasonable people can kind of understand that. And once explained to them, yeah. they can see, you know, that is how we, if we're looking at, you know, it's not just a Twitter mob telling the police what they should do. It's people in the community talking to you who then yeah. have a good relationship with the police. It takes away that, um, you know, or, or even other way around, maybe it's, not the best relationship with the police, but it's a really good relationship with the community and the police can go, okay, well, you know, they have better access to that community. So yeah, it's kind of a buffer Absolutely. in a way because there's, there's so much vitriol right now, which is something I guess we could chat about. Um, but what I wanted to start with, sure. I guess, um, in terms of just what's been going on is you sent me a while ago, um, Justice Michael H. Tolak, he's the um, Ontario Court of Appeals. Yeah. So so he, I guess, came up with, it was either a report or a recommendation where yeah. he said the province went too far in, in eliminating street checks. Yeah. What's your opinion on that? No, I think it's a really good report. I remember when it came out, I, I've cited it in a bunch of my teachings and other things I've been part of, projects that I've been a part of, we've cited it. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the biggest things is because he, he does a good job, A, of defining the difference between a street check and carding, okay, which I think is one of the major issues in this country. Mm -hmm. um, because this emanated, the debate around street checks emanated from Ontario and really Toronto. So I don't know if you know the backstory around carding. It's a practice that was done in predominantly, it's an Ontario practice okay. by Ontario police agencies. They call it carding. Okay. And it's essentially a random interaction that involves basically police going up to you and going, ID, what's your name? Give me your ID and a contact card that gets produced. I, t I saw you at this time on this date. Okay. It came to be carding, right? Mm -hmm. But that term came to represent street checks mm -hmm. in general. And at West, if you talk to any police, the further West you go, they're like, we don't do carding. We do mm -hmm. street checks. Okay. There's a, there's a bit of a difference. Most officers will tell you a street check. Yes, it's an interaction, but there is almost always a reasonable suspicion for that interaction. There is okay. no randomness for it. We can articulate why we're doing that street check. 
And a street check might not even require a demand for ID. It might be so much as getting your name, maybe not getting your name. Maybe it's, I see you doing this. You're suspicious. I saw a male at this time of day in this area on this, on a bike doing something suspicious. And here's why I'm going to document it. Right. Okay. So that automatically that, that language around street checks, carding street checks became distorted across the country. And it really made it difficult to have a lot of discussions because police were like, well, we don't do carding. Yeah. And we do street checks. And a lot of people are like, well, isn't the street check exactly what carding the is? Same as carding, yeah. It's different. And then the other layer of that is carding gets associated with stop and frisk, mm-hmm. which is a mm-hmm. lot of people I'm sure well aware of, of a New York City police practice occur in the UK. They call it stop and search. And that goes a step further. That yeah. is, hey, you look suspicious. I want your ID. Give me your ID. And I'm going to search you. Yes. So... And they, they ended that in New York, right? They did end they, it in New York. Because uh, they found discrimination, racism, yeah. and everything. Yeah. What happened was basically it became a case of, well, there's high crime areas and a certain typology of people that we're looking for, and we're just going to search them. We're going to stop yeah, them all. Yeah. We're going to search them all. Because it, it was kind of a response to a, a very severe you know, increase in crime in, yeah. in that era, right? But yeah. heavily overrepresented black yeah. young black males became yeah. heavily overrepresented. And so yeah. Toronto is an interesting story, and I'll give you the Cliffstones version, but in the late 2000s, Toronto had a real spike in gun violence. Okay. They call it the summer of the gun. And the chief at the time basically created this team called Tavis. And I can't, it was a Toronto anti-violence something, something. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it was meant to be this, it, the way it was characterized was as this like community oriented slash enforcement team. Yeah. And they would be deployed in the highest risk neighborhoods in Toronto, like Jane Fitch area, where the highest level of gun violence was coming from, where the major concerns were around gun violence. Mm -hmm. And their job would eventually be build connections, be visible, and also do some proactive police work, right? Okay. The problem was Tavis gets unleashed or implemented, and they really didn't do, if you go back and read kind of how it played out, they really didn't do a lot of the engagement or the criticism is they didn't do a lot of the engagement component. Mm-hmm. It was just a lot of the enforcement proactive stuff mm-hmm. and street check numbers in Toronto and the province of Ontario went way, way up, oh, wow. like way high, similar to what you were seeing in New York with stop and frisk. Yeah. And again, who was overrepresented young black males. Mm-hmm. And it was basically just stops and you were getting ma- black males come Basically, same play, and, and mostly, like I said, it's a real. It, it became a Toronto thing, but Peel Police did it, Durham, Hamilton. They all implemented some form of street check, and um, and it, I wouldn't say implemented because this is a practice any cop will tell you has been going on for a very long time. It's just more known now, I guess. Interesting. Anyway, that those numbers in Toronto eventually led to the ending of Tavis, and. Um, Ultimately, the province of Ontario, and I'm really giving you the Cliff Notes version, basically making it really, really difficult for police to do street checks and carding. Okay. One of the reasons was it automatically officers had to start telling people, you don't have to talk to me. You can walk away, which is informing you of your rights. But yes. police believed the key tool was we don't want to tell these guys they don't have to talk to us. They, they, um, that's a disadvantage for us, right? So that was one way of reducing it. But there were other more strict policies in place, documenting policies that really reduced street checks in the province. Fairly strict, as Justice Tullock talked about. The, the complicating factor here is 
with Tavis, as street checks went up, gun violence in Toronto went down. And only in the last couple of years have we seen gun violence start to go up again in Toronto. And some have called for a return to street checks, a return to carding. Tullock's piece was not that. Tullock's piece was more along the lines of, we have to give our police officers an ability to engage the public, to proactively mm-hmm. police. It's part of, basically what he's saying was, it's part of their job. And these checks do play a role. We can't get rid of them altogether. We just have to be, and this is a guy who is no, who has been no, um, I, want to say, I don't want to say no friend to police, but he's been very critical of police over his career. He is. A, it, we were, I think, chatting about he's quite progressive. Yeah. First um, black justice yeah. at the Court of Appeals, I think. And then, yeah, lost a job as the chief of police in Toronto yeah. for criticizing policing he, as an institution. He's a heavy hitter. Yeah. yeah. And he's not, po- and, he's, and he's by no means a popular guy in the world of policing necessarily. But his statement was basically, we've gone too far. Yeah. In the one direction. So he looked at it pretty thoroughly. And we need to course correct somehow. Because we okay. need police need to be able to engage the public. Um somehow. Yeah. So there's definitely a sentiment that and it's you know happened before the defund the police movement mm-hmm. and before Black Lives Matter. I mean, probably going back into the seventies and you know, after Rodney King and, and yeah. everything. Um just that prosecutors and, and judges tend to be out of touch and not, I guess, as informed on criminal justice reform and how to prevent violence. And they're just more, you know, the law yeah. and order, the Donald Trump. Yeah. Do you see a way that we can mend that perception? I know there's one, I, I forget his name. He's, I think, Adam, I'll have to look it up, but uh, he gave a TED Talk and he's a prosecutor yeah. saying, you know, in my job, we have to figure out how to give these young offenders an opportunity. Yeah. Um, you know, a second chance. Is there, do you see kind of a movement of prosecutors and judges and, and them or, or is it, how can we mend that division? It's really, so it's a really, it's, it's a, it's a question that's probably way too big for yep. an hour. <laughs> Even if there was three but, hours. Yeah. But, but it's interesting. It's a really good question. And I'm coming in. So I teach intro crime justice. I teach corrections. So, but I'm not a corrections person, nor mm-hmm. would I say I'm an expert on our criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. But I would say, I'll start off bluntly and say, by focusing this moment that we're in, mm-hmm. we have to be very careful to not focus too much on just the police. Yes. This is a system, a complicated intertwined system. One thing I tell my students all the time is this, if one part of your system is failing or messed up, it's going to have ripple effects for the other mm-hmm. parts of the system, right? Mm-hmm. So the analogy I always give is this one. We look at transit as I always get my kid, students, what's a system? And one system, they say, oh, public transit. I'm like, okay, so I'm on my way to school today and I take transit when I go to work or teach often. This morning I wake up in my place in the West End. I'm going to get a bus to a SkyTrain to another bus to here. In the morning I take my bus, I get to the SkyTrain station. My SkyTrain is stalled on the track. Mm-hmm. that's going to now cause ripple effects for transit for the rest of the, for the rest of the, at least for a significant amount of time. Yes. Why? Cause it's going to put more strain on buses. You're going to have to get more staff there and everything else starts getting less efficient. Right. Mm-hmm. Not only do I get late, but that whole system is messed up for that day possibly. Right. So if we think in a grander scale with policing and criminal justice, a lot of the issues we're seeing on a frontline level in policing are due to issues we're having in our other benches of the yes. system. Now, 
Is it about now? Listen, we're not in a moment. No, we're very different in Canada in the respect that we don't elect our prosecutors. Of course, yeah. we hire them, right? So mm-hmm. I know I'm sure you're well aware of what's going on in some American jurisdictions with the move to hire what they call kind of progressive district attorneys. Mm-hmm. So Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Chesa Boudin in San Fernando, two of the most kind of polarizing right now. Mm-hmm. And they ran on a platform of basically like decarceration. We're not charging for minor offenses, nonviolent offenses. We're pushing it back. Bail reform. Yes. We're pushing it back to you. And with mixed responses. And jury's out, right? Yes. Here, it's different. And I'm not going to get into the complexities of our system, but there are certainly issues as it relates to sentencing, as it relates to the decision to charge, how, who to charge, what sentence to, um, what sentence to, um, hand down or recommend Mm -hmm. the same. What I will say is there are issues, of course, with discretion. This is a very Mm -hmm. discretionary process, right? Are prosecutors out of touch? I wouldn't necessarily say they are. I would say part of the thing is they are overworked. Mm-hmm. Prosecutors are incredibly overworked. They have huge caseloads. There's not a lot of them. And then judges, their beliefs about what needs to be done aren't necessarily, don't necessarily align with what's best for the public, what's best for offenders. Unfortunately, there are only so many options available in our system right now. Mm-hmm. And I mean that as in, ter- in terms of an alternative to incarceration, right? And and my big thing is we're talking so much right now about policing. We should be looking at our correctional system. Of course. And how we address a lot of these issues. We have a revolving door correctional system. And we know by now that Indigenous people are overrepresented both in terms of ar- contacts with police, arrests, charges, sentence lengths. And I'm not going to get into all the big details, but we're talking about like they're less likely to get treatment in prison. Mm -hmm. They're less likely to get access to programming. They're less likely to get access to culturally appropriate programming. Mm -hmm. So you've got individuals who are, you know, overrepresented in the system already. They're more likely to spend more time in jail, which is counterproductive. They're less Mm -hmm. likely to get parole. They're less likely to get statutory release at a a proper time. So they spend more time in jail. That's counterproductive. Mm -hmm. And so we're sending these individuals out. Not only are we weaponizing them with what we do in terms of the prison experience, we're also not preparing them for rehabilitation. We're not rehabilitating. No, no. So they're destined to be arrested, to commit crime again, Mm -hmm. and be arrested, and the cycle continues, right? One of the things that has become really, really prevalent right now in Canadian corrections is the use of remand. So more offenders are being remanded into custody, and remand basically means you're spending time in prison awaiting trial or awaiting sentencing rather than being out in the public. Yeah. And that's a huge issue because you get people in and out, in and out, in and out, and none of this does them any good. Um, but in terms of reform-minded at the sentencing and prosecutorial level, absolutely, there is so much that can be done. The challenges are we need to really start rethinking our justice system in general. Mm-hmm. And do we want to have this adversarial system? Is this the system we want to have? Or are there other components that we want to start considering? Again, do we want to expand and make our restorative justice programs more robust? Mm-hmm. Do we want to start creating more um, community courts, yeah. alternative courts, alternative sentencing, diversion programs? Do we want to start creating that? And do we want to start creating more culturally appropriate correctional processes of course this is it it reminds me of something you know going on what you were just saying about the difference between 
policing, which is getting all the criticism right now, yeah. and and you know what happens in the criminal justice system. So yeah. looking at the courts and looking at jails. One thing that I remember speaking to you about was just, you know, I feel like our generation is very informed on trauma. So what does trauma do to the nervous system? Yeah. It makes people more alert, more aggressive, more stressed out, more likely to become addicted or, or get involved with crime. Yeah. Um, severe trauma, not just tough, you know, adversity, not mm-hmm. adversity. Um, one thing that you mentioned just with policing uh, once is... When an officer is responding to a situation where there is a bar fight and a guy has smashed a bottle of wine and he's about to stab somebody in the eye, that officer doesn't have the time to think about what led up to this point and the trauma that may or may not have happened to him. So the trauma-informed policing, which is important if if we're addressing just mental health crises that don't involve violence, but the idea that the the trauma-informed component should be more the justice system how do we get people out exactly what you just said all of these programs that are more appropriate for them culturally appropriate for you know offenders who don't have a family for now that this this instance of crime has has ended where do we go from here versus somebody coming to a very very intense situation where there's you know totally a knife or a fire or, uh, you know, violence. Um, So I have a story. I can give you a great example of kind of what this is. And I was in Edmonton for a project on street checks a couple years ago, and I was doing a ride along with their downtown members. Edmonton's kind of in in New York city because it's kind of in transition right now, but it's Mm -hmm. downtown core. It has two real hotspot policing areas. It's downtown core and uh, it's entertainment district, similar to Vancouver. It's just different geographically. Yeah, but their yeah. downtown core is a, is a well, you would call it a crime kind of hotspot, I guess. Anyway, I was with these two officers and we'd had a fairly slow night. And the way it works in Edmonton is they have what's known as beat officers. And they're beat enforcement officers, similar to what we have in Vancouver, just more expansive. Basically do most of their work foot patrol, right? Okay. But we were there in the winter by the time it gets cold and the streets get empty, they start spending more time in it. They get in a car and they drive around. So okay. we're spending the last couple hours of the shift driving around. Yeah. And we're driving down, I think it was Jasper Avenue, which is the, one of the main drags in the downtown Edmonton core. By that point at the night, the only people you're going to see hanging out there are probably homeless people seeking shelter, warmth, um, gang-affiliated members maybe, and people going home late from mm-hmm. partying in restaurants. But this is a weeknight. And so we're driving down the street and we stop and there's a group of youth standing on the corner indigenous youth and um background of the story is this is a kind of a they were wearing uh gang colors okay the colors of the red alert uh which i believe is a first nation gang and the officers didn't even roll they didn't even it wasn't even a street check literally the officer rolled his window down and asked a question about um he was asking a question i forget what this question was but it was not related to crime or policing or anything he was just asking a harmless question Mm-hmm. And the kids responded. And one of the guys who was with them kind of moved away a little bit. And the officers were like, I know that guy. I know him. I know him. And I'm going to check to see if he's, he should be down here. Because he's, he's hanging out with these kids, teenagers, early 20s. They're wearing red alert colors. This is an area that's been known to see gang activity. I don't think he should be with those people. So he enters his, so he, he, he's looking for it good enough. He's in violation of his conditions. Oh, wow. His release conditions. So long story short, they end up, he's in the, and he's, and the interest, so, okay, big deal, right? What's he doing, right? Mm-hmm. The officer says, well, the last time I arrested him, he had a gun on him. 
mm-hmm. and he's got a history of violence. So I want to talk to him. And I want to get, I want to put him in custody because he might have a weapon. So chances are he can have a weapon on him. So we end up, long story short, they tra- they find him. They arrest him. This case, no gun, but he's got knife on him. And other, I think uh, a couple other things. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, why are you arresting me? Like, well, you're affiliate, you're, you're hanging out. You just, he'd just been released from prison that day and was in violation of his release conditions. He was hang, he was past his curfew. He, he wasn't allowed to be downtown as part of his condition at that point in time at night. Mm -hmm. And he has gang affiliations and he's not supposed to be there. Now we can get in the broader debate of, is it the police's job to, I mean, what help, what does that do to help that guy by arresting him or whatnot? However, you've got pretty strict conditions that. Are they necessary? I don't know, but they're strict and they're easy to violate. So mm-hmm. there's one strike, right? Yeah. Easy to violate. But what I took away from all of that is not necessarily that component of it. It's when you see this guy's criminal history. He was my age. And he had been in the system since he was like 15, 14. Wow. And you're looking at assault, aggravated assault, 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 weapons, rob, you know, just on down the line, right? And this guy was from Hobima. Now, Mesquascus. Mesquascus at the time when it was Hobima, it's improved a lot. But Hobima was one of the worst First Nations reserves in Western Canada as it related to poverty, violence, gang activity. I once had a call a, a police officer who also a PhD tell a class of mine, he saw more gang graffiti in Hobima than he saw in South Central LA, in the South Side of Chicago. He's like, it's bad. And these kids are lost. They're just lost souls, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But here's the thing, right? So you think about it. Here's a guy, young man who grew up on a really rough place with a lot of deep issues. Mm-hmm. So there's trauma there for sure. Mm-hmm. And at 14 or 15, he's involved in gang lifestyle probably. He had a history of it. He admitted to it. He, he was trying to get out. Mm-hmm. But he's in that life. And there's more trauma, being exposed of to course. violence. And now you're in the system. You're going to get arrested. And again, and again, and again. And now you're in prison. And now you're exposed to more trauma. And now your life is a cycle in and out of the system. He was out of jail that day and was in violation of his conditions. And the officer was said, listen, man, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Why am I, why are you putting yourself in these situations? And he was like, listen, man, I'm trying to get a job. And he's like, well, we're going to do what we can to get you back out. And they did. They got him released on a promise Hello. to appear. And, you know, he was going to have to attend court, but he was out again, at least that night. But he said to me, he's like, and you've got to. You've got to turn yourself around. But then you think to yourself, how? Mm-hmm. He's got probably so much unprocessed trauma, so many other issues in his life that our system is doing nothing to help. Mm-hmm. Nothing. It, and it's really frustrating because you've got a system that's going to eat him up, spit him out. Yep. And then cops who are out looking for him again. And yeah. they're going to put him back in and in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. And it's like. So this yeah. story, it goes to two things. I mean, one is there was on the, the Georgia Street had this beautiful article about a an officer who who felt similar to this, and you know, a man who had been in, involved in you know gangs and violence his entire life, and he ended up giving him sympathy and saying, "Hey, let's figure out what we can do." Yeah. And now they tour the country and they kind of you know he teaches young people how to get out and how to you know see hope on yeah. the other side. The other thing is just like a bunch of questions I have here yeah. that I'd love to chat about is the whole idea of initially as somebody who knows officers who are really, really good people, yeah, 
the defund the police is is a hard one when and especially yeah. when you know people who have been victims of crime and and you know the the extent to which that can cause harm in communities of poverty and you know the, the victims are not yeah. just the rich people in the west end they are people who live in in those yeah. communities as well so speaking to them people who have addictions and all of that yeah. they they want help as well um but the one thing that i i really like and this goes to that story is when you look further at the defund the police, the the conversation with rational people becomes about we need to put more funding into mental health. Yeah. And you sent me an article. Um, it was St. Paul's Hospital and UBC Psychiatry, uh, Dr. Bill McEwen. Yeah. Mike Harcourt, he's a, he was an old, uh, I think he was an MP. Old mayor, mayor old well. MP. Uh, and Bill McCune, who do, who has worked with Odd Squad, who is the VPD's version of that, getting people out of the skid, out of skid row, basically. Oh, wow. That, wow. Like Alar Snow and Toby Hinton and the Odd Squad guys, they've been, the, they, they produced Through Blue Lens, which is the famous documentary in the early 90s about the challenges of the downtown east side. Wow. And getting addicts out. So he's he's got some credibility in that world. And the the neat thing is that currently they're working on a presentation they're planning to give to the uh, Vancouver City Hall in the fall, addressing the 300 worst cases of severe yeah. mental health, possibly even resulting yeah. from brain damage and addictions. And, and the individuals who absolutely cannot just live on their own in supportive housing yeah. and who can't just go see a therapist once a week totally. and who can't get employment because of the severe mental health issues. Um, So you, you wrote to me that you said you agreed with this proposal and you saw hope in it. In that article, it did say that um, Atira Women's Resource Society, Janice Abbott, she called it a slippery slope because you don't want to commit people who are against their will. You don't want to, you know, go down that slope. Um, So her criticisms were saying that the social safety net has been scorched and we need to actually, rather than commit people, we need to do, you know, safe supply, livable housing, guaranteed annual income. Yeah. So that's the two sides. We've got Bill McEwen and we've got um, Janice Abbott. The right approach, Yeah. different opinions. Uh, what's your opinion? So I actually think it's funny. I actually think they're coming at it from, they're coming at the same solution from different angles. And I think part of it is because of what we lack, right? And this is just me. I'm not an Tracy, you know way more about addiction and all that than I do. This is coming from me in the work that I've done, riding along in the downtown east side, speaking to academics who do that kind of work, being in Kelowna last year for a, a report, engaging their kind of stakeholders who are associated with the mental health and addiction issues there, awesome. and kind of hearing this whole 360 all thing, All of right? it, yeah. So where I want to come at this from is – we basically, we call them high risk, high need, mm-hmm. right? And so I'll give you, this is what a woman in um, Kelowna who worked for, I believe John Howard said to me, we have a population of homeless. Within that population, there is a, temp- a 10% who are really difficult to house. Yeah, We can't put them in shelters with regular homeless people because of the danger they present, mm-hmm. but we have nowhere to put them. We have nowhere to house them because the housing we need for them is got to be purpose built. Um, it's got to have access to treatment on site 24 seven or re- at least regular access to mm-hmm. mental health nurses, doctors. They've got to have their medication provided to them or for them available. Right. And we're talking about paranoid schizophrenic and really high risk mentally ill people. Yeah. They also need some rules and regulations in place in these housing, not to restrict them 
but for who they're associating with, mm-hmm. how they live. And we also need to help them find stability, whether that's safe supply, sure. But it's so it's all of it, right? Safe supply, housing, mental health, treatment, and then ultimately, hopefully employment, right? Mm-hmm. The, the challenge is we don't have those that housing that doesn't exist. Yeah. So to get people in that housing, so the compromise then becomes, well, we have to compel them into facilities mm-hmm. or whatever the facilities you have, we have to compel them to, to be there, right? And that's that slippery slope, right? That's the committal. That's the, oh, we open, reopen Riverview kind of thing, right? Yes. That's the whole notion of we don't have anything else. So we have to do something. But the reality is the panacea kind of thing is no, 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 no. Purpose-built housing mm-hmm. that is kind of dedicated to those high-risk, high-need people to stabilize their lives and get them back into a, a life they can live. Mm-hmm. We don't have that right now. Yeah. We have SROs. We have places run by Atira or the hotels that have been bought by the government and now being run by places like Atira that are a stopgap solution. Yeah. And so I think they both know what needs to be done. They're just coming at it from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, what Janice, is, what Janice Abbott wants is to me what should be done. Yeah, that's where we should go. Mm-hmm. But in the now, I think if that's our solution, I would go with what what Bill wants because we can at least address those now. Mm-hmm. Because in the meantime, that population is at risk themselves for victimization, but they're also at risk for offending. Yeah. And we don't do anything with them. They're in and out of our hospitals, and who's dealing with them? Police, yeah. because no one else will, and no one else can. Mm-hmm. And that's where. I think police would like to see this go because the ultimate down the road is if we do that, police won't be needed. It's like Johan Hari, your, your, your guy Johan talked about this in Switzerland, right? If we can get those people off the street, stabilize them, give them safe supply, access to drugs, access yep. to safe injection, access to treatment if they want to, access to employment. But just putting a roof over someone's head isn't going to do that. It's mm-hmm. not. And I can tell you stories of people, of, of ride-alongs I've been in, where it's 100% clear that's not just the answer. Of course, yeah. One thing that makes it difficult is, even going back to the 40s, 50s, 60s, when women were institutionalized yeah. for you know, having emotion. Riverview was yeah. just a, a bad example of what happens when something is left unregulated enough and of course COVID has exposed what's happening in in our elderly care facilities and the slippery slope just we want to avoid obviously abuse of people who are who are vulnerable yeah but the answer is not to just do nothing the answer is to and that's why I advocate for that kind of I don't what wrap true wraparound services yes that are basically built around supportive housing, mm-hmm. not just supportive housing, not just safe injection, not just, we do all these disparate things. Yeah. Do it all. Yeah. Which is interesting talking to you because I've spoken to um, a number of, of downtown East side activists and safe supply activists and, you know, drug users who say, Hey, I can, if I have a clean safe supply, I'm not scared every day of yeah. overdosing of death. I'm not seeing, you know, 10% of my friends die every week. I'm not yeah. seeing, police be violent to people because they're overstressed yeah. and they're they don't understand the issues yeah. um and again that's a conversation i'd also like to get into of, of what police have what's happened to them you know leading up yeah. to this moment of where they've interacted with someone yeah. now um 
but it is interesting how the the drug user activists are saying the same thing. They're saying, listen, overdose prevention sites are just keeping us alive. They're not giving us what we need. We need, you know, a guaranteed income. We need support and, and help from what they, what they experience every day. And and whether that is, you know, systemic oppression or whatever, um, things to talk about and things to, for all of us to kind of think deeper about rather than just, why are we saving these people's lives after they've, you know, overdosed nine yeah. times a day? That kind of frustration from lack of dialogue. And, and and the other side, you know, get rid of all the all of the police because that hashtag all cops are bastards ACB, or whatever. Yeah. Or F twelve. Yeah. And and it just on both ends. So it's become so polarized. I want to jump in there for a second because I think one of the issues we're having right now in this moment in time is and part of it I think is because we're exposed to so much information. Yep. And I think Twitter the voices, and plus, you know, the voices silent. of this movement are young. Yeah. They're 20 to 35. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these young people who themselves may have been the victim of profiling or targeting or knew mm-hmm. somebody who was or heard the stories or heard the narratives yeah. or saw someone like them killed by a police officer or whatever mm-hmm. are being, are, are finding their voice. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of really well-meaning people involved in this who are just being exposed to this for the first time. Mm-hmm. And acting like, oh my God, this is going on? Yeah. And people like me and you, and I think people in policing and other areas, social work. Or even the anti-war community who, for the first time, yeah. you know. The you old know. hats are going, what are you talking <laughs> <Everyone>. about? <laughs> We've been talking about this for years and yeah. years and years. Do you know, VPD released its Lost in Transition report in 2008. Wow. That was Fiona Wilson's Bates report, basically saying, you need to get a handle on mental health in the city. Because we're seeing an uptick. Like 30% of our calls for service are mental health components. Yeah. It's higher now. Yeah. Police were banging this drum 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, doctors were saying this is not tenable. And like police were saying, we're not the ones who should be responding to this. But mm-hmm. we're the only ones responding. To- we're frontline gateway to the mental health profession, to the of mental course. health sphere. We are... Why you're asking us to do more de-escalation training? You're asking us to do more crisis intervention training. Fine, but we still shouldn't be the ones doing this job because we're not mental health professionals. We're not mm-hmm. social workers. So now I think that the way this narrative has come about, being like, "Well, it's police's fault that they're responding to mental health," is wrong. They're it's not their fault. This is a result of years and years and years of abdication by different government bodies course, and agencies yeah. to where it becomes the police's responsibility. Mm-hmm. And they're probably more willing than anybody to work with whoever they want, whoever's willing to, to limit their contact with mental health. The only difference I think they'll come at you with and say is, we can't be excluded 100%. Not because we want it, we don't want to be. Because there are people who are legitimately dangerous mm-hmm. that we will have to deal with. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we're at this moment now where it's like, well, we need to look at policing and what policing related to, you know, response to crises or mental health. Fine. But we should be looking at all the, all of the circumstances that lead to why police are at that person's mm-hmm, door for a wellness mm-hmm. check. We have to look at what other systems are in place or not in place that's led to this, right? Mm -hmm. Can I give you one example? Yes. To me, this crystallizes, to me, this crystallized in my mind. It's a story I tell my students from 2016. 
And it's my way of going, that's policing in, in, in that's what policing looks like. And it's benign, a cop would say that's a benign story, right? Okay. But it was one that was like, and I'll give a trigger warning to your audience. It's kind of graphic at the end, but I think it's important to tell the story. So I was doing a ride along with VPD for a study. And these two officers I was with were driving through the downtown east side. They were BET officers. So they're working in the downtown east side of Vancouver. And we're driving up Hastings and a guy flags us down. He flags the officers down and says, there's a woman on the street over here. She's naked and she looks like she's in some distress. And he's like, I'm worried about her. And uh, people are looking and, you know, she's vulnerable. And the officer's like, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll stop. We'll help her out. So they stop. She's right there. Now, by this time, she, someone had given her a T-shirt. She was covered in a big, big T-shirt, but she, had anything, she didn't have anything else underneath. And she was, uh, you know, in her probably 40s, maybe, woman, tiny. And she was basically, she was really, she was moving around violently and just just rolling around on the floor, covered in dirt and um, not all there, right? Couldn't really verbalize what was going on. And the officers knew her. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, yeah, we dealt with her. And one of the officers, like, the last time I dealt with her, it was worse than this. This is not bad. Uh. So one of the officers goes over, this is going to be a section. So that means they're going to detain her under section 28 of the Mental Health Act, which is the power the police have when a person is a threat to themselves to or themselves, others. Yeah. She's a threat to herself because she's totally vulnerable. Of course, yeah. So he's like, you know, calls. Which is many cases. Exactly. Lot. So the section under 28, they call an ambulance because it's the ambulance who's going who's gonna to transport her to the hospital. Yeah. But now that because of the act and because the police have done it, they have to wait with her. And yeah. for protection. And the ambulance could take forever, right? So one officer sits with her and he's basically just, she can't really communicate. So he's just making sure she's okay. The other officer and I were chatting. He's like, the last time we saw her, we got a call to Insight. And she was in Insight and they're asking her to leave because she was either naked again or partially clothed, clothed or whatever. And he's like, and she was saying some really disgusting stuff. Like part of her illness, part of her is she was saying some really, uh, really, really bad things. Not her fault, but it was getting mm-hmm. kind of. So they asked us to get her to leave, to, to come and escort her out. And that's an issue right there. Well, these are, I thought, I thought we wanted social workers to deal with that. Why'd they call the police? But they did. So he's like, we showed up and he's like, she basically latched onto my leg and I couldn't let her to let go. Oh, wow. And so it was, he's like, it's, so it's, this is better. So ambulance comes and uh, they get her set up on the gurney, take her to St. Paul's. One officer's in the ambulance with her, and then we are driving behind her. While we're there, the officer I was with is like, so people, various people we deal with can have certain histories, hazard, they call them hazards and histories. It's like cautions, things you should know about. Like if I'm dealing with you and you have HIV, I would want to know that you have HIV. Okay. Or that you're known to carry exposed needles in your pocket, or you're known to be anti-police. They're officer safety things. Mm-hmm. He's like, so she has a number of cautions that are pretty out there. And then you've got your, you know, communicable disease. So hepatitis maybe or whatever. But he's like, one of her cautions is you have to be very careful when searching her because she's known to stick needles and other sharp objects in her vagina. Oh, wow. That's a caution. That's he's like, and that comes from the fact that we dealt with her one time. We got multiple calls. She was running down Hastings Street, bleeding out of her vagina because she'd stuck a whole bunch of sharp objects up there. Oh, my gosh. So we take her to the hospital, or the officers do. And luckily, 
we're not waiting. They're not waiting that long. It can be up to six hours sometimes. This time it's about a, an hour, maybe. Mm-hmm. And they just basically, until security and the doctors take custody over the officers, then can leave, right? So we walk in with her. My last image of her is her being strapped to a gurney by several doc- by nurses and doctors to shoot her up with a needle of whatever she needs. And then what? She's going to be released when she's fine. And then she's going to be back where she was before in the downtown east side doing what she needs to do. And the cycle continues. Mm-hmm. And that's not even the end of the story. We get end of the shift. One officer comes and goes, oh, I hear you dealt with such and such. And we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, we saw her before you guys. She was cleaning out her vagina with orange crush. Oh, no. And I say to my students, I'm like, that's policing. In the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. Did you sign up to do that job? No. But who else is going to do it? Yeah. And that's the thing. And and the thing about her is she's got a history with cop because that's our system. It's the revolving mm-hmm. door system. Mm-hmm. It's so frustrating because those members don't want to have to deal with her. They don't want to have to put themselves at risk. They don't want to have to put her at risk. Mm-hmm. And yet that's what we have. Yeah. Um. And so when we talk about defund, what bugs me is, okay, right now, that's all she has. If yeah. we defund them, what do we have? My thing is the opposite. Let's properly fund the right institutions, and then we won't have to pay so much for policing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what I would like to work towards. And I think police would agree with me. And I think most community activists and user activists and, and you know, mental health activists would agree. This is another topic I want to actually chat about, too, is just what makes the media and yeah. the context of that as well. But what makes the media versus what doesn't? Um, yeah. Certainly right now we're seeing a lot of cases like we had um, Mona Wang at uh, the UBC Okanagan nursing program. Yeah. And... Corporal Lacey Browning, I think yeah. it was, responded and, you know, caught on videotape being absolutely atrocious, you know, a, a very horrible response to something, a, a woman going through a mental yeah. health crisis and, you know, needing something that wasn't going to be by somebody yeah. who wasn't going to be violent. So the idea that you and I were chatting about is in an instance like that, when someone's not violent towards themselves, they're, you know, whether they're feeling right. depressed or they need somebody to talk to and, and they're genuinely scared of where right. their emotions are going and they call for help. There could be a body that responds to her. And if there is violence involved or potential for violence, then maybe an officer follows yeah. behind and is there in case. Um, so you, you have the option yeah and it's good that this is all being discussed so i mean they talk about those cars right those partnerships those police social worker partnerships like cardi seven in vancouver yeah kelowna has a couple but the only problem with those right now is i don't think people a lot of people know about is they have clients they're not a reactive service yeah they go and check in on these clients to see if they're doing okay get them are they taking their meds to give them their meds that's what that partnership has done yeah. Va- incredibly valuable, right? Awesome. But they're not a reactive entity. No, yeah. Um, there have been police social worker programs, specific teams like you're talking about in the UK. Okay. That are more responsive. I think that's, there's there's evidence those teams work. Yeah. Um, we haven't gotten to that point here yet. Mm-hmm. And a part of it is resources. And mm-hmm. from the health side and from the police side. 
Which is what you were saying, interior health. Apparently, the RCMP was screaming for resources. For yeah. These so the follow up story, there, the officer in charge of Kelowna Detachment was basically, we want more of those teams. And Ontario's, we're not willing to do that right now. We're yeah. not ready to do that right now. And that's a provincial authority. Exactly. So, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, it's really hard. And even like with Vancouver police, and they're part of two different, there's community out, assertive outreach team um, and assertive. ACT and AOT, and they're both mental health teams comprised of various organizations, uh, various mm-hmm. partnership groups, including Vancouver Coastal Health, um, Vancouver Police, social other social workers, and they work on teams to deal with these people who are high risk, high need, mentally ill people. Mm-hmm. And these are these teams have shown to be beneficial, but they're funded limited they're limited funding for these things right so unfortunately you have a case like mona who's in crisis and really the only the instinct is to call police because that's all we seem to know exists for this yeah and you get an officer responding who either doesn't know how to respond either responds incorrectly either has their own issues they're dealing with that they bring to the they bring to the scene Mm -hmm. and it's not the optimal solution the problem is at three o'clock in the morning and or early in the morning when I have someone in crisis, who am I going to call? Yeah. Um, it, ha- it generally happens to be the police. And my question is, I think a lot of police people is, let's work to a place where that's not the call you're making. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That story is obviously it made the media because it was horrific. Yeah. And that woman was, you know, a student and a, and a great one and compassionate and, and yeah. absolutely didn't deserve what, what happened. And that's a bad example. And I think, yeah. you know, what we're getting in the media is we're getting confirmation of bias. Now, this officer represents all officers. And now this officer and, and you know, there are yeah. many. Absolutely. There are many bad instances. Yeah. But then the comment is always that police don't have a, I forget what it is, something about police don't have a problem. They have a PR problem. Yeah. Because um, then you get the other instance where there is domestic violence happening. Um, there is crime that is stopped or prevented or interrupted doesn't make the news and officers are getting they're facing like this story you just told scenario after scenario of very traumatic very tough things yeah and what that does to the nervous system is it makes cops now a little bit overreactive Absolutely. a little bit. And especially with, with the U S and black lives matter is an entirely different scenario because anybody in the U S can be holding yeah. a gun and there have been really horrible responses, but there is also not enough knowledge of, of what officers yeah. go through every single day and the context that led up to that. Yeah you know, yeah. kind of over, that's just how the nervous system works. It, it overreacts yeah, to absolutely. what is this object pointing out of, oh my gosh, that could be a gun. And there's a lot so. we don't know. Even we, we're still learning about that kind of stuff too, right? You know, my thing with policing is interesting because it's about narrative, right? I talk, I teach my students about this. We talk about narrative. Yeah. Like who tells the story, right? So historically, if we look at policing in the 1950s and above, police told the story. Right. Yeah. We am, the m- mainstream public implicitly tr- trusted police. Right. Yeah. So police say just the facts. Here's what happened. We generally deferred and went, yeah, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Right. 
I always defer to that. Uh, it's a quote. Mark Wahlberg's character says it in um, The Departed. And he's talking about the FBI, but he's like, you know, we treat him like mushrooms, bury him in shit and keep him in the dark. And that's, <laughs> I think, how police for a very long time in the 1900s up until, the, you know, maybe late 20th century viewed the public. Okay. You know what we tell you and trust us, right? Interesting. And I think the media played a role in that for the most for part. For sure. Um, because and there's about, criticisms around that, yeah. absolutely, and they need to have been and, had. And, and I think that. if you look at critical analyses of media, it, part of it is access, right? Yeah. We need access to police. Yeah. So we're going to paint them in a pretty good light, and we're going to report what they say. Interesting. And, and so I think we as a public defer to that for a yeah. very long time, at least as far as I can remember. Yeah. I think that started to change for me personally. And so they had the narrative, right? They controlled the story. Mm-hmm. Police like, oh, yeah, we shot the guy. But we had to. He was yeah, reaching yeah, for something. Yeah. Okay, we believe in the cop. Trust him. And we're all socialized. I think a lot of us, and I will say, Western white people are raised, a lot of us, with the mainstream view of policing, which is, trust the policeman. He's mm-hmm. there to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. They always do. And that was presented to us through shows like 24, or shows, oh, yeah. you know, all of these, Law and & Order. And, oh, yeah. So that, that definitely was... You could say the propaganda in that oh, era, yeah. for sure. And then as Canadians, we get the Mountie thing, too. Yeah. Always get their man. Did you know at one point in time, the Mountie symbol was the second most recognized symbol worldwide, other than the Nike swoosh? Wow. Really? Yeah. So we're raised oh with that, gosh. though, right? Okay. Mounties and maple syrup and Dudley do right. So anyway, mm-hmm. for me, that got shattered with Rodney King. Yes. Because there's the window into the world. Yeah. And for me, I go... Holy crap. Police do that to people? Yeah. Of course. And if you go back and look at some of the amazing documentaries that have been done on Rodney King and O.J. Simpson's documentary is a great one that look at the history of policing in L.A. and the U.S. You have minority communities like the black community in L.A. going, "Uh, we've been telling you this for years. Yeah. Where were you at? But for a lot of us. Music has been created about it. Yeah. We were like, whoa. This, at least for me, that was the story. And for I could, sure. and then you start to hear more. And then I think in Canada, quite frankly, was Jakansky. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jakansky shatters a lot of what we think we know about policing. Yeah. And then the response by police to it was not very good because the Mounties go, no, we'll tell you what you need to know. Mm-hmm. And that to me has led to a seismic shift in, co- in concert with the rise of citizen surveillance. Okay. Right, which is me observing you, observing me kind of thing, right? Yeah. Goldsmith coined the term surveillance in 2010 when he wrote this article okay. called Policing's New Visibility. It is an excellent article. Um, any egghead people listen to this, check it out. It's really good. Um, and so we see G20 in Toronto. The yeah. riots are on film. Police mm-hmm. doing some pretty shady stuff to protesters yeah. on film. Seattle in 98 is recorded basically. The um the world trade stuff mm-hmm. is recorded. And we start and so up to 2007 Jakansky cell phone video, Paul Boyd cell phone video. And so we start to see a shift in the narrative to where police aren't telling the story anymore. We are telling the story. Yeah. The problem is this. So police benefited from this for a really long time, right? They benefited from not telling the public anything about what they do, mm-hmm. not educating the public on what they do. Mm-hmm. Why did they benefit? Because the public trusted them implicitly. Yeah. And that allowed bad actors exactly. to be protected. But it also created a situation where the majority of us get our education about police from where? From the nightly news, 
from 24, from law and order. And I say this, pardon my language, but the average person knows fuck all about policing. Yeah. And we still do. And so what's happened? Well, the police are behind the eight ball now because they have, an, they have an, a public that is not very well educated about policing at mm. all. They don't understand use of force. They don't understand their powers. They don't understand training. They don't understand... I always say to someone when they say, oh, I know policing have a hard job. I always say, you have no clue how hard that job is or what it looks like. Mm -hmm. We don't. And police have done a terrible job of telling their story. They just have done it all. So much so that now when they're trying to tell their story, they have no legitimacy, right? Mm -hmm. Because these videos tell the story. These news articles tell the story. And so I like to say we're being educated now by people who are uneducated about policing. Interesting. And that is generally... Media people, um, I find that one of the biggest flaws in media right now is a lack of literacy on policing. There's Mm -hmm. tons of reports out there on policing across this country that are public documents. I don't necessarily see, you know, global journalists, News 11, accessing, who report on policing, accessing that Mm -hmm. material. I think it's a a field that you should have some knowledge about if you're going to report on it because it is so complex and nuanced. Same as, and you you talk about drugs and addiction and you're out there doing, you read the stuff. So when I read an article you write, I go, hey, yeah, she knows what she's talking about. Yeah, she's done yeah. the legwork, which to interject here really quickly, just kind of a note on journalism is that it, journalism went through a transition. Yeah. So essentially, you know, newspapers and magazines lacked the hindsight when they started putting articles online yeah. for free and everyone should access that. And then, you know, without realizing that was going to be where the majority yeah. of articles were read and newspapers were going to lose all of their yeah. issues being purchased. Yeah. So what happened there is they had to start putting out way more and putting more resources into yeah. online. But the value of advertising online kept decreasing and decreasing and decreasing. So more articles had to be posted for more clicks because clicks pay for advertising at that time. And then that happened that kind of led, okay, now we're getting journalists who are, you know, one of their job descriptions is five to seven articles per day. This is a newsroom journalist. They are subject to the Twitter mob who who really, you know, the loudest people yeah. affect the most change. Yeah. So it may not be the majority opinion, but it's the minority loudest people who say, hey, you can't write that. Yeah. Hey, you're wrong. They're going to respond to that. Yeah. So that's, you know, Twitter comments on their articles, all of that. So what's happening there is they're getting inexperienced journalists yeah. who don't have the time to read any research and or not even inexperienced, sorry, but just uh, under a lot of stress. So, and then they're also kind of trying to play into this narrative that they think is going to get them the most clicks and all of that. So the one really cool thing that's happened with journalism is that it's switched to a subscription model just in the last few years. So now you go to the Globe and Mail or the Star or the New York Times or the Atlantic and you have a paywall. So now, now that we have these, you know, a new economic model for magazines, newspapers, even online blogs, that funding can start again, once again, to to hire investigative yeah. journalists who have the time to interview multiple stakeholders and read multiple research papers. But it's rare because people need to pay for journalism yeah. in order for that to happen. So it, there's so many complicated. It's really complicated. And so what the issue for me personally has been to watch is this. The 30 second video clip gets the story. Yes. It generates the story. Yes. And there's no, and there's no context. There's no follow up. It's the 30 seconds. So if I'm a young person sitting at home, I see the 30 second clip and read the article. And that's, that's my fully formed view of that story. Yeah. 
I don't see the down the line what actually happened, yeah. what the response was, what the mm-hmm. 30 seconds or 30 minutes before were, mm-hmm. what that person might have been doing. And, you know, when I was doing my MA research on use of force back in 2010, 11, mm-hmm. one of the use of force guys said to me something that stuck with me, and I think it's true to this day. He's like, the use of force rarely looks good. It looks bad. It's messy. You're fighting with someone. You're taking their liberty away. Mm-hmm. Putting someone in cuffs doesn't look good. Kicking someone, punching someone, swinging a baton, it doesn't look good. And unfortunately, I think the general public, even though we're exposed to violence in popular media, has a hard time seeing police mm-hmm. on video use force. Mm-hmm. And my thing has been for a few years now, you have to get used to it. I'm sorry. There are cases that are going to be egregious examples of misuse of force, but not every use of force is a misuse of force. Mm-hmm. And ones that look bad might be not bad at all. It just looks bad to you. Mm-hmm. And we have to get over litigating these events all the time simply because it offends our sensibilities. So you see a bad thing. And George Floyd is the, is the outlier mm-hmm. because we see it all. And every cop I know goes, that's an execution. There is nobody who disagrees. No. no I, there, you could and if not they do, I don't want to hear what they have to say, quite frankly. Nobody does, yeah. However, the vast majority of use of force we see on video is an incomplete story. Yeah. It's an incomplete picture that we're doing a disservice to A, the cops, and B, the person being having force used against mm-hmm. them by just going with whatever we think. Mm-hmm. And I see that a lot right now. We're in a moment, right? So every story, every video is going up on News 1130 or it's going up on Global. And even if they, sh- even if it's like I look at the video and go, well, what's, why is that up there? Or why is that story up there? What's the point? Mm-hmm. But we're in that moment right now. And my fear is it is contributing to that dissonance that we yeah. have of what policing we think policing is and what policing is. Mm-hmm. And that's the fear that I have right now more than ever. Yeah. yeah. And I agree with it. It's, it's exactly what you said. It's that the, you know, cognitive dissonance, the confirmation bias, yeah. the when, and, and, and it, it unfortunately is bad for, for the victims of these yeah. crimes. What I'll call them, you know, yeah. it's absolutely a crime when, when a police officer executes totally. a person. But unfortunately, when that's all somebody sees and those people are told every single day by the media, by Twitter, by everybody that this happened to that person because of his race, because of an immutable characteristic about him, that renders everybody absolutely fearful and almost immobile. They're paralyzed. They can't do they can't do anything and they're not seeing the instances where that didn't happen. Yeah. Which would actually benefit the population because we yeah. wouldn't be living in fear and on edge and yeah. willing to be at each other's throats. And, and I think there's a really there's issues. a couple of things the public really needs to be aware of that they don't hear a lot. And they won't hear a lot unless and I, quite frankly, I'm not always sure police are the best people to be saying this, right? Because they're they have an issue with their legitimacy, right? To where mm-hmm. the public is at a point now it's like, can we trust you? Yeah, yeah. So when they say it, or unions say it, police associations say it, they're not necessarily taken seriously. So I think academics, but I also think people who are in the field, in the world of policing, whether it's your journalist or whether you're a police scholar, have an obligation to say, listen, police have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of interactions with people every year in this country. There are 60, there are almost 70,000 police in this country. With 30 and a population of what, 35 million? 
they're having hundreds of thousands of millions, if not millions of interactions a year. Mm -hmm. The number of interactions that result in misuse of force, um, profiling, misconduct are small. Mm -hmm. They're out there, but Mm -hmm. they're small. But they're going to happen. I, I hate to say it because we have so many interactions. We have so many police officers. We, they're going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we have to, yeah, criticize them when they happen, act on it when they happen, but also acknowledge they are rare. The same goes for mental health, right? If you told, if an alien came down from outer space and said, okay, how do you deal with your mentally ill? And we say, well, actually, we sent an army of armed men and women to deal with them. They go, <laughs> you're fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah, what is that? The reality is police have over 30,000 contacts a year with person mental illness. And the very, very few of them result in tragic circumstances. Mm -hmm. Now, is that, should we laud the police? Well, I think we should at least say, well, they've made efforts to train their officers Mm -hmm. better, to hire better, to implement crisis intervention training, et cetera, et cetera. But we're rolling the dice still. It's a Jenga tower, right? Yeah. And we we roll the dice every time. We don't adequately respond to mental illness, but we do need to acknowledge, yeah, police shouldn't be responding to mental illness, but believe it or not, they do a pretty good job given that they're not mental health professionals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's something I think we don't, we need to acknowledge and, and talk about and because, think, yeah. Sorry. No, <laughs> it's, it's a, to go on, uh, on the, the kind of, um, the idea that a journalist's job is, you know, one of their mandates is to hold power to account. Yeah. So it makes sense that all of those, whatever percentage, which is a small percentage of the interactions yeah. that turns out absolutely horrific is being reported yes. on. It's exactly, you know, kind of what you were talking about. It's it's not representative of what's happening, but where, where do the ethics yeah. come in where, okay, we have to... You know, as journalists, I think, and people in the media, we have to kind of talk about what is, okay, so we have a mandate to hold power to account, but what is this actually doing for society? Yeah. This mandate is, if it's affecting policy and we're we're seeing change and it's positive change, that's a good outcome. But if the opposite is happening and we're having a more polarized, more angry, more traumatized population and audience, where is that mandate? benefiting you yeah. know how, how what is our responsibility and and it, it's got to be some thought we've got to stop and think about yeah. it and and realize that yes push for change and push for people to be yeah. persecuted if they are committing crimes yeah but and i'm not the kind of person that says well you never tell the good stories yeah, and yeah, yeah those yeah. stories are always nice to tell and i'm glad when they do tell a good story about police like those cops in durham a couple of days ago, who who saved the kid from falling from his balcony, right? No way, I didn't. Or see that the officer who saved the man from an incoming tra- oncoming train recently, or the officers in Newark who saved the baby uh, in the bathroom stall. Okay, oh, sorry, in the bathroom. Uh, I forget. They gave him life to mouth to mouth, save the baby. Those are great stories. We should tell them. But my my thing is not ba- not necessarily just do a bunch of you know propaganda or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. to, to balance just telling a more accurate picture of what the operational context of policing is like in 2020 right yeah. so the example i'll give is strathcona park right mm-hmm. the tent camp that goes up there or even oppenheimer when it got to the crisis point mm-hmm. 
those stories, we, we didn't have an accurate picture of what that looked like for a long, long time. And then we did. And it was, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. But it had been happening in time, right? Strathcona, we don't really hear much negative out of Strathcona until Pete Fry gets involved in that knife attack or the guy threatens to stab him, right? Okay. And then the public goes, oh, well, a city councilor almost got stabbed. This is an issue. But really, the vast majority of the public, other than kind of the when a couple of residents of that neighborhood start to speak up, doesn't really know a lot about what's going on down there. Yeah. And I think we need to get a better understanding of what the operational context of this city is like right now and the policing in this city. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you do that. I think you consult experts more. You engage police better. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you find what's out there. It's really hard, though, because I don't know if it's, a, if it's the media's job to blow smoke up the ass of cops, right? Of course. But I also don't think it's the media's job to forward a narrative that is uninformed, is incomplete, and could be damaging in the long run. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really, it's it's hard. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. We're, we're at a, it's definitely a, an inflection point where there's a lot to to think about. Um, if you want to talk a little bit about, so so you're a researcher and we, we talked yeah. a little bit about how you conduct your research and working with teams and when you're, you're um, you know, hired out by, yeah. you, you were involved recently in a, um, a project, uh, 2019, where you yeah. guys were looking at, and almost in response to Tolak kind of informing, yeah. let's look at street checks, let's look at um, racism in the VPD and is this happening? Yeah. How serious is it? Um, if you want, and I, I know you can't say everything, but if you want to talk a little bit about that research and sure. how I kind of want to give some context sure. of how initially it was almost unno- unnoticed, untalked yeah. about, not reported on, and then it blew up. Um, yeah. If you want to explain that a little so, bit. So, yeah, all I can really say is that the report had resulted in a complaint being lodged um, to the OPCC which is the Office of the Police Complaints Commission, which, which investigates complaints against municipal police services in the lower mainland of British Columbia, not the RCMP, so okay. including Vancouver police, who the report was about. And um, that investigation ultimately ran its course, but it has caught a lot of attention from activist groups, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, um, Pivot, um, BC Civil Liberties, Black Lives Matter, um, are continuing down the line, down the line based on some material that was in the, that was in the report. I'm not going to get into too much detail. There's stories out there. If you want to consult the Globe and Mail or, um, News 1130 mm-hmm. or Global, they're, they're out there. CBC. Um, the original report itself, when it came out, as you said, in 2019 or late, de- late December, early, late December 2019, early November, early January 2020, okay. didn't get a lot of attention. Um, uh, didn't get a lot of, um, g- public attention. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite, quite frankly, not until the street check discussion came up again recently when the mayor said he wants to ban street checks and that's going to be moving forward on. Um, what I will say is that that report, you know, we stand by that report, the quality of that report and the final report, all our recommendations, um, were the same as it was between the draft report, which caused the initial complaint or resulted mm-hmm. in the initial complaint. But the report itself, the recommendations never changed. And we based those recommendations off of Justice Tulloch, 
had said, mm-hmm. what Scott Wart- the Wortley report in Halifax, some of his recommendations we took, some of what we did, some of what a team I was part of in Edmonton did. And really, the purpose of that report was to, yeah, okay, we talked about the data behind the street checks and whether street checks should be banned or not. Our conclusion was they shouldn't be. Um, not because because we don't know enough about their effectiveness as a policing tool and we shouldn't kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. But we also had some particularly important points in that report about the need for police in Vancouver to better engage with the public, to be more engaged with the public, and to do a better job of understanding the issues in a lot of these communities, right? Unfortunately, that's kind of uh, about all I'm, I can say or comfortable saying. Mm-hmm. But what I but but I but I do stand by that report, and um, I stand by the amount of work that we put into it, and we put a ton of work into it, mm-hmm. like a ton. Um, in terms of the groups that we engaged, like Rain City, like um, at a, the Aboriginal Advisory Council, Mosaic, like ISS, John How, uh, uh, yeah, John Howard, um, Union Gospel Mission, First United Church, uh, Vancouver Youth Services, um, and I'm, I'm, there's others in there, you, other youth mm-hmm. services organizations, Directions Youth Services. We went out there and, and engaged a lot. We we talked to representatives of the trans community or LGBTQ2S, so trans and LGBTQ2S community. Mm-hmm. We talked to representative of the Afro-Caribbean community. We talked to representative First Nations communities. We we engaged a lot of those communities. We did a lot of we did the ride-alongs. We engaged the officers. We engaged, we did a ton of work on their with their data. We tried to produce as comprehensive a report as possible. And I think it's a good report. Um and so but we the, are where we are right now. The outcome was of that report was that you found that there was there were all of these organizations and yeah. you know charities that you have just um, described. Yeah, they they the community stakeholders, so the people who were concerned about um, violent yeah. crime or about did yeah so, like the business improvement associations. Yeah, who we also talked to looking at how to proper respond, you know, is there, what was the outcome of the report? Because I know you said you were proud of it yeah. and that it still stood. Yeah. And- so in terms of some of the, out, yeah, in terms of that piece, the, 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 um, the qualitative piece, the community engagement piece, mm-hmm. what I found was, and this is something that we found similarly in Edmonton, while there certainly are groups who are far more opposed to police in terms mm-hmm. of their presence in communities, in terms of what they do, in terms of who they are, the vast majority of communities, and this doesn't even need to be street check reports. It can be other reports I've been a part of. But a lot of most communities, at least that we've engaged, want police. Interesting. They want them in their communities. Now, they want them in a more meaningful way, a more engaged way. They have mm-hmm. ideas about what could be done and should be done, but they mm-hmm. want them. Yeah. Or you have organizations that acknowledge, hey, we know they're going to be in our lives. So we want to work with them. Interesting. You know, when we did the research, one of the questions I asked like to some of those organizations like Union Gospel and First United and Directions Youth Services, among others, you know, if training were to be offered to Vancouver police officers or police officers of any agency in general, would you be will or would you have or would you be willing to have officers come in to talk to you or you would you be willing to go and talk to them? They all said, yeah, absolutely we would. Interesting. They could come talk to us. We'd go talk to them. We'd give them an idea of what we do. 
talked to him about crisis intervention, about where we see it, our ish. They were all, every single one said, yeah, absolutely, we'd be, we'd be interested in doing that. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, some were more willing than others, but there was an element there of like, yeah, we would like to engage them in some way. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge takeaway for me because beyond street checks, beyond all that, what it tells me is most communities, and I sh- actually I shouldn't overgeneralize, but what I, what I think is communities – advocates, frontline workers acknowledge that, and I'm not going to say the need for policing. They acknowledge the reality that policing exists. Okay. And that it's important to work with them to work towards solutions mm-hmm. rather than necessarily shutting the door completely. Mm-hmm. Um, some will be more at, some people I think are more uh, vocal about saying, yeah, we need police. Others less so. But even they will acknowledge we have them in our lives and we have to work with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important piece that shouldn't get lost yeah. in the discussion right now. Um, so to give it context yeah. for um, listeners is yeah. just right now the report's being criticized because elements that were a very small percentage of of that yeah. finding that you just out, laid out there yeah. um, were from criticized. The policing side, from the policing side, yeah. Yeah. So it, can you talk a little bit about that or? Um, not, not, yeah, I'd, I'd be very wary, but basically it relates to the conduct of office of, of a couple of officers we observed. Yeah. Um, which to me in research is quite unique because normally research reports, there's an ethical obligation to your participants, but there's also a belief when you produce a paper or report that it's going to be used for, for a purpose of a solution or a policy, not necessarily to result in a complaint or an investigation. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit, that, that was, that's different territory for me. Mm-hmm. Um, plus because I'm kind of down the list of the, of the people in the report, I'd be reluctant to kind of speak for them. Of but, um, yeah, that's where it is. I don't know where we're going to go with it. Um, yeah. But uh, I, w- I know um, that there there's still frustrations mm-hmm. with things. But um, for me, it's I, I just, you know, we move on to the next, I move on to my next research project or I move on to teaching again and that's mm-hmm. what it is. But I will say what's going to happen with policing in the city of Vancouver in the next year or so is going to be very interesting to see. Mm-hmm. And all I, I know, what I want to make clear is it needs to be evidence-based. Uh, it needs to be research-informed. And it needs to be include the input of a vast array of stakeholders, including the police, including academics, including business associations, advocacy groups, outreach workers, social workers, doctors. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a lot of that um, Mm -hmm. because we're at a moment right now in the city where there's issues with places like Strathcona with violence in communities that's going up or at least communities like Yale town Strathcona are saying mm-hmm. we're seeing more violence. We're seeing more disorder. Mm-hmm. Vancouver police are regularly reporting how many guns they're finding or replica guns or bear maces or pepper sprays. And so we're at a moment here where we're, we're kind of at a crisis point or getting there as it relates to crime, mental health, homelessness, addiction yeah. and public safety. And there so, is even a notice in my lobby saying um, it's a, from a group, Safer Vancouver, I believe, very concerned about the rising 
yeah. crime in the area. And and I think the unfortunate thing when, when that doesn't get discussed is that those people feel left out and they feel angry and then they resort to really derogatory, horrible slander, you know, towards people who do need help and who are not committing crime. So exactly. again, the importance of And that's why this moment dialogue. is so important. And we can't make it sounds so melodramatic. We cannot make a mistake. Because if we make a mistake now, it's gonna impact us for years to come. Mm-hmm. We've made those mistakes. We know where we are. We have an opportunity to address some significant things as it relates to addiction, mental health, homelessness, policing. But we should do it the right way. And I think my biggest fear is we're going to, this discussion is going to be a hundred percent about policing and nothing else is going to get dealt with. Mm-hmm. And that can't be the answer. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just can't be. Yeah. Well, I definitely think this is a worthwhile discussion. I'm glad we had it. So me too. Thanks for coming it. here today. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks for having me. It was great. Of course. Yeah. And anyone, if they want to, I know you said you're less active on Twitter now, um, but if anyone wants to find your work, social media, anything uh, you want to yeah, put out there. It's, um, it's, yeah, my Twitter's not active right now, um, but- Which is it, good, I did the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my ins- uh, I, don't do, I don't put anything research-wise up on Instagram, but if I, ba- I do get back on Twitter, it's uh, J-J-M-U-R-P-H and then three Ys, all awesome. one word. And they can take your classes at Kwantlen. Kwantlen, yeah, I'm teaching there. And if, they, you know, if anybody's interested, um, they can always check out the Kwantlen website, the faculty website or SFU website, and I'm around there somewhere. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.